In Christ's name, amen. John's Gospel gives one eyewitness's account. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also give a similar limited account. But you need to read them together, really. But we are focusing upon, of course, this Gospel, the Gospel of John. And so I would encourage you to take time to read the others and even to reread this one, which are representative of the passion of our Lord. Now there was a fellow, a Christian back in Chicago named Jimmy Simpson, and the way I know about him is that I got his diary that was actually loaned to me by the former pastor of a good number of us here, uh, Wallace Bell. And Jimmy would read one of the accounts of the Gospels every day. And his reason to do that was so that it might humble him about his sins and that it might make him grateful to God for so great sal salvation, even for so great a Savior as Jesus Christ our Lord. And so let me now go to Again, the running account of John in John 19, 17 through 37. First, Jesus was crucified in verses 17 and 18. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side and Jesus in the midst. Uh, the vertical beam of the cross and the cross, there are three types of crosses that this would be and, and, and it's uh, unanimously, unanimously agreed that it was the T cross, uh, the small T cross as opposed to the big T cross or this, an X. All three were used, but this one was like this. <clears throat> So the vertical part of that cross was already in place at Golgotha. Jesus was forced to carry that cross beam, which was heavy, from where he was tried, the praetorium, the courthouse of Pilate, to the site of his execution. But the Lord Jesus was too weak from not having eaten for over a day, not having sleep since the upper room the night before, and because of all the scourgings that he underwent, as we learned about last time, terrific punishment against his body. Anyone in this situation would, at least the average person, easily have collapsed, but our Lord endured. And so a passerby by the name of Simon of Cyrene was elicited to help him to carry that cross. Isn't that uh, ironic how the Lord says that if someone bids you to carry your cross, meaning a Roman soldier, you're to carry it the whole distance without complaint. And even 
to say to him, another mile after you've done one mile already? Christ was also said to have been assisted by others in order to get to Golgotha. In another account, Mark 15, I'll read it to you. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place called Golgotha. He was probably just unable to, to go that distance. And then when he arrived there, his hands were tied to that crossbeam, which was uh, put on the ground, and he was laid on it. And his hands were kneeled, or perhaps his wrists were, were kneeled through with nails to secure him on that beam. And of course, it was hoisted up on that vertical beam and then fastened onto it. And then underneath his feet was a platform that was put so that he could push his body up so that he won't die from asphyxiation. Now, it wasn't so much that they were having mercy upon him as their desire to have his ordeal prolonged. And his agony was indeed prolonged. His feet were nailed to the vertical beam, either separately or together. We are not sure. As it is written in Psalm 22, which is the premier commentary in the Old Testament and prophecy of the work of Christ. <clears throat> Verse 16, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Next title, King of the Jews. I won't reread that part. The title is a sign or placard written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, all of the main languages in the Roman Empire, saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, the Jews wanted to first read, and he said, or he said, because that upset them. That was the very reason why they were having him put to death, because he claimed to be their king, which in their minds he wasn't. How could this be our king, who can't even defeat the very enemies that, that have him held captive and are now the very instruments of his execution? And perhaps even ours down the road, as they anticipate retribution especially for their insurrection, their anarchy against the emperor. And he's not even a martyr for our cause. You don't even allow him that distinction. Little did they know that as the scriptures go on to read in the epistles of the apostle Paul, that he, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In other words, he subjected himself willingly, voluntarily, without any coercion, at least in his heart, in his passion, to finish the work of his father. 
He said of himself, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. That's really what is happening. It is behind the scenes that all of this, the drama of redemption, is being orchestrated. Yet there will be a day in which his father will highly exalt him and give him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Did I say even in hell? And that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pilate dismissed it as he did Christ as a threat against the Roman Empire. He was convinced that Christ is anything not a threat. He suffered indignities at the hands of the soldiers who crucified him, who parted his garments. There are four that are assigned, four soldiers to every criminal. And so, to every soldier apart. And then there was this coat or tunic, which was without any seam. It was complete. And to, to divide it would be to destroy it. It was very expensive. It's what was the undergarment of a person, especially in the cold of night and also protection from the heat. And they said amongst themselves, let's not rend this or cut this one up, but let's cast lots. And of course, this was to fulfill prophecy once again. More than likely, Jesus was stripped naked at this point. Like the Romans would do to their enemies, like to the officers of armies that they conquered in order to humiliate him, in order to denigrate him, in order to make him feel like scum. They parted my garments among them, cast lots upon my vesture. Christ care for his mother. I will read verses 25 through 27 of our passage again. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cephas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, who he loved, he saith to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple, that disciple took her unto his own home. Among the women is Mary, Christ's own mother, standing there, watching her son being executed for no wrong of his own. It would be like watching a loved one whom you know is not guilty of, of some capital crime being tried and then later sentenced to death for something he was not guilty of. What must she feel? What must she think? Probably as she did all 
those short 33 years of our Lord's life since his birth. If you remember when he was brought for the dedication in the temple, that Simeon made a prediction about Jesus, her son. And Simeon said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through your own heart, Mary, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. As a praying mother, she observed from the sidelines these very things unfolding in the life of her son. A sword would later be used to make sure that Jesus was dead instead of his legs being broken along with the other two criminals who were on crosses on either side of him. But a sword also would pierce Mary's heart as well. And it says back at the time of Simeon's prophecy, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's all she could do. That's all oftentimes a mother can do is just think upon uh, the things that are happening to the life of uh, her child or children. All she can do sometimes is maybe give a word in season or out of season. If that. All that she can do is advise her son to take care of himself. And also to let him know that she is praying for him. Praying without ceasing. A mother's prayer. From the sidelines. From her prayer closet. From the family altar, which is now just with her left. Because her husband is gone and the children have grown up. And our Lord is on his heavenly mission. Must have been a very lonely place. But not lonely in the sense that she wasn't alone, because our Lord says that I am with you. I'm with you. I'm with you, Mom. Now she stood helplessly there, as it were, under the shadow of her son's very own cross. You can picture this. The sun going up, the shadow even coming across her face. There's a hymn that we sing, and I love to sing at the celebration of the birth of our Lord. What child is this? Why lie he, why lies he in such mean estate where oxen ass are feeding? Good Christian fear, for sinners hear the silent word is bleeding. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Then we hear the final words of our Lord to his beloved mother. Woman, behold thy son. Woman, we think, oh, that's very cold and indifferent uh, to address your mother this way very personal type of address? No, not at all. If you are familiar with the culture, to say that was a term of endearment, of love. 
that excels, that is only excelled by gods. His treatment of her was with great tenderness. His concern for her as her elder son and for her well-being, for her provision as a widow is now to be bereft of him was remarkable. That's how she raised him to be. That's how it turned out. He raised in the fear and nurture of God. And at this last hour, they will be together for the last time in his life. Mother, I want you to think of John as your own son now. He'll take care of you. He'll bring you home. And then his final words, his beloved disciple, his son in the faith, John, behold thy mother. John, would you please take care of my mother, Mary. For Joseph is already gone. And my brothers are not anywhere to be found. And like a conscientious elder son, I want to make sure I will care. And no doubt, Joseph tasked him with this responsibility before his departure from this life. And he took it seriously. As the Apostle Paul would declare about those who would serve him in the ministry, serve the Lord, that is, in the ministry. For if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. More importantly, this was his mother who brought him into this world, who took care of him growing up until manhood. And though Jesus was a poor man by the world's standards, he doesn't even have a home to leave behind for his poor and aging mother. For he himself didn't have a place where to lay his head. Though the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, yet the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. But thankfully, he had a follower who did. And he took care of his mother. Then we come to Jesus' death, which would be the completion of his mission. 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Fulfilling another prophecy of scripture. Now at this point, according to Matthew, which is not included in, in the Gospel of John, Christ cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is the Aramaic for my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The sufferings were complete in his bearing the wrath of a holy God for the sins of all of his people, for all of the sins of all his people. As the angel said to Joseph, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God the Father hath made Jesus his son to be sin for us who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. After hanging there on that cross for several hours between heaven and earth, for those few and yet seemingly eternal hours of time, in the increasing heat of the day, having suffered in his body and now also in his soul, he said, I thirst. Like the rich man in hell who asked Abraham in heaven if he would send Lazarus to him, that he might dip his finger in water and touch his burning tongue. But unlike the rich man, Jesus did not deserve to suffer our hell for us, did he? And yet he did. For such a high priest became us. That is, he is our great high priest who has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily as those high priests, those sinful human priests that preceded him, that typified and pictured him was to come to offer sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people? No, he didn't. He only needed to do it once and that wasn't for his own because he had none. But solely for his people. And he offered up himself to do seven. It says in the Heidelberg Catechism the following, why is it added he descended into hell. Have you ever thought about that? That statement in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell? Well, he didn't actually go to hell. Let me make that perfectly clear without making getting into that point of doctrine. He did not go to hell, but he suffered and endured the hell of his people on the cross, on those hours on the cross, in his death of the cross, and his burial. answers the question as to why it is added he descended into hell. That I, my greatest temptations, meaning each one of us as God's people who are tempted, who are swayed by sin and Satan from time to time, who are provoked by the evil one, the tempter of our souls. That I may be assured that Christ my Lord, by his inexpressible anguish, pain, and terrors which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before has redeemed me from the anguish and torment of hell. So he not only saves us from our sins and from the wrath that is warranted by a holy God, but the very expression and the consequence of sin and the just punishment of everlasting hell. He endured that. Even in that brief time of his death, sufferings and death on the cross. Almost at the moment he received the drink, Jesus declared to all, and especially to his heavenly Father, the following words in verse 30. It is and yes, it is true, his life was finished. 
but more importantly, to the Lord Jesus. And I pray to all of us, his mission is accomplished. It was finished. And now he would bow his head and give up his spirit and commend his soul back to his father. For his meat and drink, his life and purpose for living was all about one, to do the will of his father and finish his work. And finish it, our Lord did. Then lastly, we come to the fulfillment of prophecy again. Verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The Jews were concerned because it was the start of their Sabbath day preparation, which was at dusk, continuing on into the Sabbath day proper which would be Saturday. If these criminals were hanging on the cross, it would defile the land. This can't be. Such meticulousness on the part of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and, and all of uh, and the high priest and the elders. When it came to the purity of the Sabbath, when it came to the purity of their feast, and especially this feast, the Passover, murdered the Holy One of God for whom the very Passover was made. Paul alludes to that when he says, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Like Peter would testify at Pentecost. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, there's no denying it. There's hard fact evidence his being who he says he is. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was planned from eternity past. You have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and Sling. Acts 2. The Roman soldiers broke the legs of the other two to speed up their death in a way that would increase the intensity of their agony at the same time. They were all about that. Or they saw Jesus had already died. They didn't subject him to the same added torment or torture. For those things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. The bone of him shall not be broken. Or as the Psalms, Psalm 22 declare, I may tell or count all my bones. These are all intact. A skeletal system is complete. And as we already noted, a spear was used to assure that our Lord was truly dead. And that also to fulfill Holy Scripture. They shall look on him whom they pierced. Or again, Psalm 22. They look and stare upon me. Why this report? Who shall believe 
are report. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, said Isaiah. Well, I'll tell you what, none of us will believe, but for the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 35, the reason, and he that saw it, and this is speaking of John, the eyewitness of the Lord, who is sitting as it were on the bleachers, he is the one disciple of them all who, who was there, right there, front row seat, while it was happening, Bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith is true, that you might believe. That's the whole goal of the Gospel of John, is that you might believe, so that you might have testimony that this indeed is the Son of God, risen with power, or actually he died on the cross and will rise again. In conclusion, there were spectators. We know of those the Roman soldiers, the Jews and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and John, also Mary, and Mary his mother and John himself. And there were participants. Remember the two thieves that were crucified on either side of him? Another account of Luke talks about that in greater detail, doesn't it? Participants in the death experience, the very, the very condemnation of Christ, they were undergoing as well. But as far as entering into Christ's vicarious suffering, meaning his substitutionary death, that was Christ's alone. For Christ was once for Christ once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and then later quickened the spirit. Toward the end, one thief defended Christ, as we know from Luke. Don't you fear God, seeing that we are in the same situation, condition as he is? Only we deserve it, but he doesn't. Don't you see that? Don't you, don't you see that Jesus is the sinless Savior? It's really what he's saying. And then he turns to the Lord and says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. The Lord said back to him, probably his last words to him too, verily I say unto thee, that's like saying, thus saith the Lord, that is the same thing. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What an illustration of the world we have on either side of Christ. The believer and the unbeliever. We know that Jesus died for believers. Not the whole world. For if he had died for the whole world, the whole world would be saved. The whole world will have its sins atoned for. But no, he died for believers like that one on his right hand, I'd like to think, because his right hand is the, is the, is the side of honor, who confessed him as Lord. You only know that, that you are saved if 
Christ died for your sins, and if you, by faith, acknowledge that and receive that and receive him, that's how that works. And that's the only way how it works. And if you don't believe, it will ultimately, it will ultimately mean and show that you were never one of his for whom he died. Because in hell there is no double jeopardy, meaning that God is going to punish the same sin twice. The sin of the believer, or the sin of one who professes faith and, and is covered by the blood of Christ, who because of his so-called free will ends up in hell because of his decision not to keep following Christ and because of his not persevering the faith ends up rejecting the faith, let's say, and ends up in hell. There is no double jeopardy. If Christ died for your sins, then the Lord will keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, with glory and majesty, dominion and power with now and ever. He prayed in his high priestly prayer, which is quite lengthy, as you know, at the beginning. As thou, Father, has given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You see how God's plan is, how secure his work is of redemption for his elect. I'm not ashamed to say that, because it's the truth. Because it is the truth. No man can come to me, says, except the Father sent me, draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. In Christ, all believers have entered into Christ's suffering. And not just the thief on the right hand that believed on the Lord. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4.10, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And that's another study all its own. But amongst other things, it shows how we are in Christ, even from the beginning, even to the end. Even in his sufferings, even in his death, even in his burial, and even in his resurrection. We will talk about that next time. Turn with me finally to Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. In closing. In which the Apostle Paul declares as his testimony of faith in Christ, I am crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What wonderful, consoling words. What a powerful confession 
testament of faith. Is it yours? Can you say it too? And will you say it? Tell the world about your love and hope and faith in Christ. Shall we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the work of Christ. It indeed is finished in its completion by our faithful Savior. He went all the way without a flinch, without a hitch, without even once looking back. Even in the garden where he overcame the temptation of weariness and and sorrow in his high priestly prayer and prevailed because he knew that it wasn't his will but the Father's that he would drink that cup. And he was good to go for that. He was willing. And you're thankful that he was. And you're thankful that he did finish his work. And we praise you for that finished work, even 